It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Laura Perry. Hi Laura. Hi Nat, how are you doing? Good. Hi listeners. Today we are talking to Professor Angela Moles. She's from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Science from the University of New South Wales. And her areas of research are global scale ecology, plant evolution, invasive species and life history strategies. Hi Angela, welcome to the show. Hi Nat. Thank you so much for making the time to come and talk to us and our listeners today. We're really excited about this topic. Absolute pleasure. Look, you lead a lab called the Big Ecology Lab in the Evolution and Ecology Research Centre. Can you tell us a bit about this lab? This is something that most of us haven't heard of before. Yeah, so Big Ecology is just looking at big scale patterns in how plants and animals are interacting with each other and also with their environment. So looking at things like big scale patterns in how things grow along climate gradients. So how do you and your students actually quantify these large-scale patterns? What's, what's the process for that? Well, we have different approaches. One of the things we do is we use the scientific literature. So there are thousands of studies out there, right? And one of the ways you can make progress is by bringing together this little piece of information from this study and this little piece of information from another one and putting them together to do a much bigger study than you could possibly do um, by actually going out in the field. Okay, so but you're of course, sort of compiling all, all the, the work that's gone before yeah, you. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the things we do. So sometimes we have you know data for 30,000 different sites around the world, which is something that would be very difficult to achieve on your own. 30,000? <laughs> <That's> incredible. <laughs> but sometimes we go out on our own uh, and do gather data in the field, or we sometimes run experiments as well. So, so that, the, that sounds a bit more fun in some ways. Oh, absolutely. I love going outside. So one of the projects I did was called the World Herbivory Project. And herbivory is just when plants are getting eaten by animals, like by mammals or by caterpillars and things. Um, And in this one, I travelled actually for two years solid and visited 75 different ecosystems around the world and measured how the plants and animals were interacting and how the plants were defending themselves. And it was amazing. I got to go to all sorts of places. Where, Where did you visit for that? Well, 75 different ecosystems. Uh, The furthest north one was in uh, Greenland, in eastern Greenland, uh, a place called Zackenberg, which is the Danish Polar Research Station. I went to uh, rainforests in the tropics, for instance. I went to the Congo, I went to Panama, I went to all sorts of places. Uh, And the furthest south site was in Argentina, uh, in Patagonia. Wow, so just the, the logistics of that sound incredible, Angela. 
They were extraordinary. I would turn up and go, Zambia, I wonder what vegetation they have here. <laughs> Get outside and find out. <laughs> but it was wonderful because at each place I'd be working with local scientists that I'd set up the collaboration with earlier. And so I'd basically have these guides who were telling me how their ecosystems worked and what I was looking at in all these different parts of the world. And I guess that you're going to strike quite a few variations or differences in how people go about these studies in different places. Absolutely. That's one of the interesting things that sort of came out of that for me as a person was understanding the cultural impact on how we do our science and the different things that we look at. Um, For instance, in Australia, we talk a lot about our low-nutrient soils and we talk about nitrogen and phosphorus in our soils, whereas you go to, say, England, and when they measure soils, they measure how acidic it is, and they don't measure the nitrogen or phosphorus. And we don't actually know whether that's because nitrogen and phosphorus are more important here than acidity. Um, It's just something that we culturally have gotten into. It's fascinating, the different things that are going on and influencing the way that people do science. Oh, absolutely. That's really amazing that there's, you know, that those seem like really fundamental kind of aspects of, of your studies and that they can differ so widely from place yeah, to place. Yeah, it's, it's really fun getting this big perspective on things, yeah. Yeah, so why why study global patterns though? What, you know, I, I guess when we think of plant ecology, we think, yeah, well, like the, the local conditions and, and local aspects are what's going to be important for local plants. Why do we want to know about what's happening globally? Well, climate change in a word. (laughs) word. Uh, So basically, if we don't understand large-scale patterns in how our ecosystems change with present-day climate, then we really are just guessing when we try and get uh, imagine how our ecosystems here in Australia might change in response to climate change. So if we can go out there and we can find out what happens as you go along a gradient where the temperatures are getting warmer or the rainfall's getting lower or something, uh, then we might be able to understand what happens when the temperature or rainfall change into the future. So has climate change been a driving force for these kind of studies though? Yeah, so climate change is one of the things that motivates people. Uh, personally, I also just like understanding why the ecosystems are so different in different places. Uh, We've got a long history, for instance, of trying to understand why there's so many species in the tropics. We know there's more species of mammals, of birds, of butterflies, of plants. uh, And our theories about why this is, most of them actually haven't really been tested, the underlying mechanisms. So, for instance, that study I told you about when I went to these 75 different ecosystems, I was measuring how intense the interactions between plants and animals were. And that was something we'd always assumed drove the higher species richness in the tropics. And this was sort of a theory that was come up with in the 60s and 70s, back when people had brilliant ideas, but they, you know, their computing technology was so sad compared to what we have now and their ability to either travel this far uh, and gather huge data sets or to bring together information from the, the published literature was much, much smaller. So a lot of these ideas haven't been tested. And when we went out and measured how much herbivory is going on, how much the plants are getting eaten, we found basically that plants were being eaten an awful lot everywhere in the world um, and that they're really well defended against animals in most parts of the world too. And so that idea that the interactions were stronger in the tropics and that this is what was driving the species richness is really not supported by what we found in the real world. But that was totally new information for science. Wow, so you really overturned that, that long-held perception 
Well, I'm still overturning it. The tropical ecologists are very angry with me that their plants aren't the most poisonous in the world. <laughs> <laughs> They're very busy trying to prove me wrong. But um, Well, that's a distinction you would want to hold on to, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, well, that's another thing. We were talking before about the different sort of human influences on science in different parts of the world. And the people who do science, you have to remember, are humans. And humans don't like changing the things that we've believed all of our like, no. careers. And so when somebody comes along and publishes something that's counter to what you've always thought you knew, then people don't, don't easily change their minds. And so what my study has stimulated is a whole bunch of other studies looking at this. And so there's more and more evidence pouring in, um, basically suggesting that plants get eaten an awful lot everywhere in the world, um, which is quite cool. Yes, yeah, that, that's great to have that kind of impact. It's very exciting. So if it isn't um, the animals in the tropical areas that are making the region so rich, what kind of factors have come into play? Oh, there, is, there are still an awful lot of theories standing. One of the theories is basically that the tropics have uh, had longer to evolve. So, you know, for instance, there were big ice sheets over an awful lot of the world. Um, so that means that the species that are growing in the temperate zone have often not had as long to evolve together. So maybe it's just that. Um, yeah, there are... There are lots of different ideas out there. And the, the simple answer is we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. So now I, I might be wrong about this, but did, as part of that study, were you also looking at then what sorts of defences plants have and whether they vary across different latitudes? Yes. So the theory was that plants in the tropics would be eaten more by animals and therefore evolution would be selecting on these plants to allocate more energy to interesting kinds of defences so they wouldn't get eaten so much. Um, And because of that, people have always thought that if you want to go out and look for that next drug that might cure cancer or something, then the best place to look for these bioactive compounds would be in the tropics. And so the pharmaceutical companies always send out people to study the tropical plants. But my results actually showed that plants, if anything, tend to be slightly better defended towards the poles and I think that makes sense because if you're a little plant growing in Greenland where the growing season's like six weeks, it's really difficult to get together enough energy to grow a leaf. <laughs> and so you really want to hang on to that leaf. You've really got to defend it against those muskox and all those things that are up there. Um, and so they actually allocate more energy to defense. So one of the implications of my results is that the pharmaceutical companies, basically they can study plants anywhere in the world to look for these nice defensive compounds. And when you look at the drugs that we do use, a very high proportion of them do come from temperate land, like aspirin, for instance, which comes from willow. Really? Okay. Well, that's fascinating that, that, that your research has had those kinds of implications. How, how have you found that climate change has impacted on your research? So, yeah, uh, with... Climate change, I've only recently started working on the actual impacts of climate change on Australian plants, but I think this is something that we really need to find out a lot more about. Worldwide, there's quite a lot of uh, studies on how plants and animals will respond to climate change. But the thing is, the Australian environment is different in some ways, and we don't know to what extent we can take the results of studies from Europe and actually apply them here. So there's a very great need for a lot more information about what's happening in the Australian context. 
Yeah, and you you spoke um, with Nat, and you mentioned about um, means and extremes. Um, yes. So, can you explain this term terminology a little bit more, and how that would apply in Australia? Say, with the gum, um, they they require extreme weather, um, but you're saying that during those extremes is when plants don't really do too well. Yes. So there's there's different aspects. Um happening with climate change. So, for instance, we all know that the mean temperature is going up. Um, it's slightly less well-known, I think, that the extreme weather events are actually changing more than those means. So we might talk about two degrees Celsius of warming, but what's happening to the heat waves and the cold snaps and things is actually much more dramatic than the amount of change that we get in the average climate conditions. And that's really important. It's important for humans. Um, so heat waves, of course, cause a lot of stress on human populations, especially, you know, elderly and more vulnerable people. Um, but, of course, it also stresses the natural environment. You'll probably notice when you get a heat wave uh, here in Australia, you'll notice a lot of uh, particular types of plants die. So I notice when we get a heat wave in Sydney, all of the tree ferns tend to drop all their leaves. They lose them all because their vasculature is not as good at uh, shunting the water around the plant as in other species. So, yeah. We've got these changes in means and these changes in extremes, and they can impact the populations in different ways. One of the things I did was took a great big global database and asked which types, which aspects of climate were actually most important in shaping how the plants were growing. And what I found is that both means and extremes are important, but the means are actually more important than the extremes for the plants, which was a real surprise for everyone. We mm. all thought that it would be all, all about what the extremes were doing. Um, but I think what's happening is that to be a successful plant, you have to survive the extremes, but you also have to leave behind a lot of little baby plants, little seeds and things. Um, and plants do this during the good parts of the year. So the conditions during the good parts of the growing season actually turn out to be the most important in shaping those strategies that the plants have. But we didn't know that. No. And can that be applied the world around, or is this more so through the tempered areas? That actually is a, a global answer, mm. so yeah. Okay. Um, you have mentioned that introduced plant species are a threat to global biodiversity. Um, how has your research helped with this? Yes, so that's, that's another threat of what we do in the Big Ecology Lab. So we look at introduced species. So we've, we've brought in, you know, thousands and thousands of species of plants and animals around the world. Um, and if you go back 100, 150 years, we actually had climatisation societies. There were uh, groups of people who were working hard to enrich the flora and fauna of Australia and New Zealand and the States and all these different places that the Europeans were colonising. Um, so there's very... <laughs> yeah, it's so funny to think of, of now, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it funny? And that's, that's another thing, just the, the human perception of introduced species has massively changed through time. And we're currently in a state where it's okay for the conservationists in New Zealand to be, you know, bludgeoning possums to death with their children and, you know, what people do with cane toads in Queensland. And I suspect we're going to look back on those and go, you were doing what? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the uh, introduced species are a really interesting case of what happens when you bring a plant or animal species into a new climate region. So we bring in these species from, say, Europe, and the climate's different here, right? We've got brighter um, UV, we've got different temperatures, we've got fires, we've got, you know, lower nutrient soils, we've got all sorts of different things, and they're interacting with different animal and plant species when they get here too. 
And what we find is that all of these differences cause huge evolutionary selective pressure on these species. And we've used herbarium specimens to look back through time. We've found that 70% of the little plant species that we've brought into Australia uh, in the last 100 years or so have actually changed significantly since they got here. Mm. And they're big changes, like they're now twice as big or half as big, mm. or, you know, their leaves are different shapes or sizes. Wow, so that's just in the space of one to 200 years. Exactly, which is actually quite good news, right? These species are basically showing us that where there is a reason for them to change, a strong selective pressure, they're actually quite strongly able to adapt and quite fast. And this is something that's coming up in research around the world, is evolution is not something like Darwin thought that moves at a sort of a geological pace. It's something that can happen very, very quickly when the pressures are strong enough. That's good news Mm. in response to climate change, right? Yes, and and, and the speed of change that we're facing. Yeah, so if these introduced species can come into a whole new climate and adapt within often just a decade or so, um, then there is actually some hope that maybe our native species will be able to do this too. But we don't know that yet. We haven't really studied them. If, if you've just joined us, this is the BZE Climate Solutions Show and we're talking to Professor Angela Moles from the University of New South Wales about big ecology and we've just got on to the topic of introduced species and, and their adaptability. So can we just backtrack a little bit on that study, Angela? I'm curious about these um, herbarium species and what they look like and, and yeah, how, okay. how you can use them. They sound very old. <laughs> They're wonderful. So herbarium specimens are basically, imagine a, a large sheet of paper, like an A3-sized sheet of paper, with a pressed plant on it. And a basic, herbarium is a library of these specimens. And these, these plant specimens, they will sit there squashed on their pieces of paper for like 200, 400 years, um, and they're still in really nice condition. So you wow, can so they're reasonably well preserved, are they? They're beautifully preserved. And you can go and you can say, well, what were the leaves of this species like 100 years ago? Mm. Um, so obviously in Australia we can't go back um, 400 years. But I, I did have a student who went to England and used some of the really old herbarium specimens there. And we were able to find uh, three species that were introduced like 250, 300 years ago. And we were able to, because the British are brilliant at keeping records, uh, we were able to ask what happened when they first arrived in Britain. Did they, you know, sort of have a lag period before they started changing? Did they change fastest earlier on? Um, and so we were actually able to find that these species, they got there and they just started changing immediately, basically, mm-hmm. on arrival in their new country, which was quite fun. And what kind of um, historical herbivory or herbivory? <laughs> what, are they? what are they, these species? <laughs> um, have you got for the ocean? Has there been research done over a long period of time for the ocean as well? Oh, less so for the ocean, I think. Mm. Um, there are sort of herbarium specimens of the uh, seaweeds. Mm, that's what, I'm yeah. not aware of anybody having done very much with those, but maybe that's just because I haven't read broadly enough. Sorry, I can't, <laughs> can't answer that one. That's okay. So um, you do... Um, when we were chatting before the show, Angela, you, you were mentioning some contrasts between ocean and land herbivory. I'm yes. really proud of getting that new word. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, what, what are your observations about that? Yeah, so we've done some studies uh, looking at what's happening on land versus in the ocean. And the plants are basically really different between the land and the ocean. If you're a plant growing on land, you have to invest all this carbon because of gravity, basically. <laughs> 
Um, so they have to be quite tough and invest a lot of energy in wooden things. And so the plants that we have on land, the leaf material is actually not that good quality food for animals. So if you think of something that spends its entire time eating leaves, like a cow or something, it actually spends almost all day eating, right? Yes, Just, and, and digesting. And digesting, yeah. yes. And that's because the food quality that it's getting is actually quite low. What you need if you're an animal and you're going to try and grow your body is a bunch of protein. And plants are very, very low in protein. Um, so they'll often only be sort of 1% or 2% protein. Um, so the animals just need to eat masses of leaf material to get enough energy. In the ocean, you don't have uh, so much carbon in the plant material. So the concentration of the um, protein is a bit higher. Um, so it's much easier for the herbivores to digest. And so what we end up with is on land, there's these animals that just can't eat anymore. And it stops their populations from building up to enormous numbers. And so on land, we've got this funny situation where there's all this food, all these plants basically just lying around. And you're like, well, why don't? Why don't we get more herbivores that's all eating meat? And in the ocean, there's not all this food lying around. The ocean is blue while the land is green. Mm. Um, and that's because of the difference in the chemistry, the different uh, protein availability. So, so in the ocean, basically, when a little plankton grows, it's pretty much swallowed up instantly, and we don't get these big green blooms very often at all. So does this have implications for where we should be growing our food, Angela? Well, yeah, I, there have been a bunch of people uh, advocating eating of seaweed and things, haven't they? It's a very sustainable way to actually do that, I believe. Yeah. Um, of course, we have to talk people into actually doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can, um, can I backtrack a, a bit to um, the topic of introduced species? Yes. Um, in reading some of your articles, I came across the concept of the possibility of an introduced species becoming native. Now, th- uh, this seemed very strange to me. How, how do you define when something becomes native? Yes. Uh, so one of the things we've been doing, after we used the herbarium specimen to look at how these species were changing through time, we took one species that we knew was changing and we used genetics to find the source population, the exact place that it came from. And in this case, we're studying a little beach daisy that came from South Africa. And we know which beach it came from. And so we went to that beach in South Africa and collected some seeds and we collected some seeds from the Australian population. And we've grown them together in the glasshouse at UNSW. And what we found is the most enormous differences between these plants. They grow different shaped leaves, they photosynthesize differently, they use different amount of water, their stems are built differently. The Australian ones build sort of cheap, uh, long stems, whereas the South African ones build shorter, thicker stems. Uh, the flower size is different. Everything is different about how these plants are growing. But what's really cool is when you try to actually cross these different populations. So you try and take an Australian plant and cross it with a South African plant to make a hybrid. And it's actually almost impossible to do because the flowering time is six weeks different. So when you're growing these plants side by side in the glasshouse, the Australian plants have just about all been and gone on their flowers before the first South African flower comes up. So even if these species were growing together on a sand dune, they wouldn't actually swap genes very much. So they're starting to get reproductively isolated through that. The other thing is when we do force them to pollinate each other anyway, 
the offspring have very much lower success rates. So the seeds of the hybrid plants germinate 30% worse than the seeds of either the purebred South African or the purebred Australian plants. So what we've got here is reproductive isolation developing between those two populations. That is, they're getting to the point where not only are they different and making a living in a different way, they actually can't cross successfully. So they're actually speciating. So, um, does, that, so yeah. does that make the one that has developed in Australia native, though, to Australia or just different to its counterpart? It does make it different to its counterpart, but this means we've now got a reproductively isolated type of species that only occurs in Australia. Mm. Okay. Um, it developed here. Now, this is, this is kind of very challenging for a lot of conservationists, right? We've got the species. It was an introduced species. It was a weed. Uh, conservation would say, well, we should get rid of it because it doesn't belong here. But now it's changed enough since arriving that it's actually become a new reproductively isolated species that only occurs here. So if we were to actually pull out all of this species in Australia, not that we could, um, but if we were to eradicate it from here, we would actually be robbing the world of one species. So we're getting into a really interesting thing. So, yeah, um, look, I, that's amazing. And I, I think throughout your um, studies, it's the, the common theme seems to be really challenging and testing accepted thinking and... You, you use the idea of a, the concept of a, a zombie idea. Can you yes. tell us about the zombie ideas and, <laughs> and maybe what, you know, are, are there any zombie ideas associated with climate and climate change that we oh. need to be okay, considering? Okay, so a zombie idea is basically an idea that's out there that should be dead. It's been killed by, like, evidence, right? So I think the best example uh, that most people know about is the vaccine. Uh, causing autism. That's been that's been absolutely smashed by study after study, all this evidence rolling in saying this is not a problem. Um, and yet the idea is still out there. It's wandering around the world, feeding on people's brains, right? Which makes it a zombie idea. <laughs> zombie, definitely. We don't have so much problem, I think, with zombie ideas in climate change as just people denying that it's, ex- uh, that it's happening. Right, yes. Um, I, yeah, I don't think we've actually got zombies there but yes it it has been interesting in my career because we do have all of these ideas in ecology that came from the 60s and 70s and they were brilliant ideas and they formed the basis for a lot of our understanding of the world and they've been hugely influential but they actually have stood and been put into our textbooks and things without being tested Yes. And it's really important for science. And I think this is in all parts of science, it's not just ecology. So yeah, uh, look, I to think... go back and test those and see if they're real. Yeah. And it, uh, yes. It, and no doubt there's going to be things that we look back on in, you know, in a year or two's time even and, uh, with relation to climate and, and say the same thing. Look, Angela, this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much for joining us today. And um, I'm sure the listeners have really appreciated it. Thank you. Thanks again. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show again or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you really enjoy the program and you'd like to donate, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we hope we'll catch you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.